This morning, we are completing one of the most challenging paragraphs in the entire New Testament. If you've been with us in the last couple weeks, you know that uh, that has been the case. And we've been in the thick of some challenging verses. We set aside several weeks to look at them, trying to notice the phrases and the argument unfolding in 1 Timothy 2 to see what, what logical train of thought is developing. Now, two weeks ago, we covered verses 8 to 10. Last week, we covered verses 11 and 12. If you were not with us on any of those weeks, those recordings are available on the church's sermon audio page. Today's focus is on verses 13 to 15. We're going to look at these verses, of course, in light of what we've already talked about. And so some uh, review will be in order. After interpreting verses 11 and 12 last week, I continued in the sermon by trying to address a series of objections. And at the very end of the sermon, I gave seven closing truths to keep in mind when we think about this challenging paragraph in 1 Timothy 2. I want to take a moment to review the two key positions crucial to this whole discussion when it comes to the roles and instructions of passages like this. The two broad camps that go by these names, complementarians and egalitarians. These two broad camps are the names of those camps on the roles of men and women in church ministry, complementarians, egalitarians. What do we say those two big terms are referring to? Complementarians believe that God has created men and women of equal dignity and worth. He has also given different but complementary roles for the church and for the home. So the key part in the word complementarian is the word complement that's not about saying something nice to someone with the word the letter I after the L. A complement is with the E after the L, and a complement is the thing that comes alongside to fit together with for mutual support, encouragement, and strengthening. According to the complementarian view, men and women in the church and in the home have equal value and complementary roles. Egalitarians believe also that God has created men and women of equal dignity and worth. Here's the difference. Egalitarians believe God has not assigned specific responsibilities and roles for men and women in the church and in the home. For ministry in particular, which is our context for 1 Timothy 2, egalitarians believe there should be nothing uniquely reserved for men in the church. All church responsibilities and all leadership positions could be filled either by men or by women or by both. So these are the two main camps that people will fall within. Not all egalitarians will agree with one another on every interpretation or extension. And the same is true for complementarians. But the difference in the camps ought to be clear in that while both would insist on the equal worth and dignity of women and men in the church and in the home, egalitarians believe all church leadership positions are open to both men and women. Now, I have argued for a complementarian reading of 1 Timothy 2. What Paul has been giving us is guidance for the church in Ephesus, but not limited to that city or what was going on there. In 1 Timothy, like in his other letters, Paul is giving guidance on what will be for the flourishing of the people of God. I think he makes this clear in 1 Timothy 3. In chapter 3.14, he says to them, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, Paul is concerned about how the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is ordered and flourishing for the goodness of those image bearers there and for their 
representation of and living out of the word of God given to them. The church is to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's why Paul says, I'm writing these things. Such things that he's writing include 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15. Again, one of the most challenging paragraphs to interpret in the New Testament. Let's look at this first part of our passage today. In verse 13, the creation of Adam first. The creation of Adam first. The verse begins like this. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. That opening word is very important. He is giving an explanation of something. That's what the word for is doing. It is serving to say, here's a reason. Here is an explanation. Here is a grounding, a a rootedness for what's just been said. And what has he just said? Well, what he's just said is that he does not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And now, in order to think about verse 13, we have to thread together some of what we learned last week. Part of this will feel like a bit of review, but I think it will bolster up what we're trying to do with this explanation in verse 13. So several points here. Point number one. Verses 11 and 12 about a woman learning quietly with all submissiveness is about a respectful posture of learning. It can be easily misunderstood. He is not saying for women that they must be totally silent in a church. That would be an overreading of the passage and a mistaken direction in the interpretation. Instead, he's talking about the context of corporate worship and that the word quietly there is the same word from verse 2 about living a quiet and peaceful life. We know that that does not mean a silent and peaceful life. It instead is a posture of the heart of openness and reception of what is being taught. In other words, you can look at Paul's letters such as in 1 Corinthians to see that women were not silent in the church. We don't want to make that error here by saying when he says learning quietly, he means women don't say anything. Instead, it's a humble posture of focus and reception. What's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is a disruptive spirit. And so if Paul is addressing some things going on in Ephesus, and perhaps that's the situation that needs to be addressed, then his instructions make sense. But point number two, the submissiveness language could be easily misunderstood as well. He's not saying all women are submitting to all men. He is talking about the context of corporate worship and what's likely in view are the learners submitting to the doctrinal instruction given by the appointed leaders giving the instruction. When Paul's letters talk about submission, some kind of appointed leader or authority is in view. Who would he have in mind when he says these words in verses 11 and 12? Well, in the context of corporate worship, the biblically qualified leaders of the church are those providing doctrinal instruction. And so he's saying, rather than having a disruptive posture, have a learning, teaching, teachable spirit that as you are receiving the word of God, you're doing so with a submissive spirit, which we would want for all learners in the gathering of the church. He's calling then these people to be learning, these women to be learning alongside the men, which gets us to point number three. Consider how significant it is that Paul wants the women to be learning in the gathered assembly. We have to remember, as I said last week, that would be unconventional for Paul's day. I'm going to give you a quote from last week as well from Phil Riken. He says, in the Roman world, women were considered intellectually second class. It was widely accepted that they were academically inferior. So how does Paul in the Roman Empire speak regarding the female sisters in the Lord? He says, come learn doctrine. Come study and grow. Come receive and process and understand with us. 
This is a shattering of ancient stereotypes, quite frankly. Number four, the term teaching in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach. The term teaching is the positive idea in First and Second Timothy and Titus that does not have to mean false teaching here. In other words, sometimes he talks about false teaching, but he qualifies it with the term meaning false teaching or in the context of some kind of different or aberrant doctrine being taught. Those elements are actually not present in verse 12. When he says, I don't permit a woman to teach, he's not saying I don't permit a woman to, to teach false teaching. We would say men shouldn't do that either. We should say nobody should teach false teaching. In fact, women shouldn't teach false teaching, not only not to men, they shouldn't teach it to other women or to children. But this verse in verse 12 is doing something different. For this term teaching, he's talking about the doctrinal instruction for the gathered church. Followed by point five here, the words exercise authority in verse 12 are actually from one very difficult Greek word in the verse. It's only used once in the whole New Testament. And so other literature outside the New Testament can shed some light. Now, how would an egalitarian position read verse 12? An egalitarian argument would be he's saying don't abuse authority or be domineering over someone. In this view, Paul wouldn't be permitting or forbidding women from pastoral authority or leadership at all. He would simply be saying to them, don't be domineering in your use of authority. The significance of that is, is uh, very um, crucial to an egalitarian position. It is true that in 1 Timothy 2.12, this word can mean to domineer or abuse authority in some aspects found in Greek literature in the ancient world. But those, that literature is later than the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Here's, here's a problem with the egalitarian reading of verse 12. In the days of the Apostle Paul and in the years prior to Paul's ministry, the word did not carry some inherent meaning of abusing authority. Instead, its significance was neutral. It was about the possession of authority, about having authority to lead. The word in itself does not communicate if the authority was exercised in some domineering way. So you would have to argue that if the word carries a negative connotation in this verse, Paul's using it differently from how it was used before him and by his contemporaries. How likely is that? And I would say not likely. Assuming the egalitarian position for a moment... If women shouldn't teach false doctrine or shouldn't be domineering, why would they single out the men in particular? Why not simply say they should not be domineering and they should not teach false doctrine? It seems that by highlighting men in the verse and then giving some kind of prohibition, Paul is doing something different. Point number six in review, the word or. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority or connecting those notions. The word or is a very particular Greek conjunction where when used, the pattern of usage connects two words of the same quality. Either both words have to be negative or both words have to be positive. And this pattern is very well established by scholars in the study of the way this conjunction is used. So this means if teaching is doctrinal instruction and a positive idea, if exercising authority doesn't carry across some negative connotation inherently, then what you have are two kinds of words of the same thing. A good idea about teaching, a rightful exercise of authority, and not some negative idea. If you were to say 
Paul is prohibiting women from teaching false doctrine, and he's prohibiting women from exercising authority in an abusive way, you are imparting the idea of falsehood and domineeringness into the text. It is not there in the verse. Number seven. He seems to be contrasting elements in this verse, in verse 12. Learning quiet, well, verses 11 and 12. He's contrasting learning quietly with the role of teaching. And, and submitting, contrasting with the idea of having authority over a man. Number eight. Paul's command is God's command. He's writing as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, not leading people into error and not inhibiting Christian flourishing. And Paul's command being God's command, whatever God's command is, is good. Whatever, God's, whatever God commands is for our good. Number nine, the traditional uniform historical position on this verse in the history of biblical interpretation is the complementarian position. Church history is not confusing on this matter. The traditional, uniform, historical position of how to understand this verse in the history of biblical interpretation is clear. And number 10, and then we'll progress after this bit of a review. I know it's a lot of points of review, but then we'll see how verse 13 builds on this. Number 10, the existence of complementarity in ministry is not a judgment on the value and essence or usefulness of women and men. It does not mean women are inferior to men or less important than men or less effective than men. That would be a caricature, a wrong understanding rejected by biblical complementarianism. So what is he doing in verse 13? He's giving you a reason. One thing that we could have done last week is look at all the verses 13 to 15. But I know by the time noon gets here, you're all hungry. We'd have been here a lot longer than noon last week. So considering this in multiple messages, the risk is you've got a week's distance between what we last thought about and then today. So a bit of that review, I hope, would be helpful. In verse 13, he's giving a reason for the prohibition. And he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So he names two Old Testament characters. We're familiar with these names. We've heard of Adam and Eve. They are in Genesis chapter 2. They're the first two image bearers, and they're reported in that early Bible chapter. So what is Paul doing in verse 13? He's mentioning an event from the second chapter in the Bible. And in Genesis 2, here's what we read. God doesn't make Adam and Eve at the same time. You ever thought about that? Paul is actually going to make a point regarding this. God doesn't make Adam and Eve at the same time. Adam was made without a human counterpart. The Lord made Eve after Adam. Genesis 2 reports Eve's creation as well. The source of Paul's reference is important because where does Genesis report the creation of Adam and Eve with regard to the fall? It is before the fall. It is before the fall. It is a pre-fall event. God made Adam and then he made Eve. And Paul's drawing attention to something that is not the result of sin, but something that happened before the fall. And he's making a prohibition in verse 12 that he then explains with something from Genesis 2. So think of it this way. In verse 13, he's explaining verse 12 by rooting that prohibition in a pre-fall creative act. First God made Adam and then God made Eve. And that order is about a creational order and design. Adam bears a unique responsibility in Genesis 2. It's hard to read Genesis 2 and 3 and not see that. He's the only image bearer at the time. He names the animals. He's placed in the garden to work and to keep it. He's told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest in the day he eats of it, he will surely die. 
In fact, the rest of Scripture confirms the significance of Adam as the head of the human race. His headship and leadership is established by the fact that God made Adam first. But here's what Paul's argument doesn't sound like. He doesn't say, I gave my prohibition because the women teachers in Ephesus are teaching false doctrine. Some egalitarians have suggested that. That the reason he's prohibiting women from teaching is because the teachers that were going on in Ephesus at the church were teaching false doctrine. But that's not what Paul says, is it? He could have said that if that were the case. But it's precisely not what he says. He also doesn't say, I gave my prohibition because of some unique circumstances in Ephesus, so don't get carried away with this prohibition with anywhere outside Ephesus. He doesn't say, I gave my prohibition because of some temporal situation. He said, I gave my prohibition because, in verse 13, Adam was formed first and then Eve. That puts you in a position outside the circumstances of Ephesus, outside the generation of the false teachers in Ephesus, all the way back to a pre-fall reasoning. He addresses circumstances going on in Ephesus by rooting his command in something deeper, something ancient. His argument seems to run like this. The reason a woman is not to teach a man or exercise authority over a man in the assembly of the church is because God's design and creation establishes man's leadership and headship. So there is a fear about a complementarian reading of this verse. Is Paul barring women from ministry? That's a reasonable question. I addressed that in part last week, but just to review this as well. Church ministry must not be something narrowed to the office of the elder or the function of teaching with authority. There are all sorts of ministries to all sorts of people. For instance, women can evangelize. They can be missionaries. They can teach other women and children. They can manage finances and show hospitality to visitors and their church members. They can serve in music ministry and nursing home ministry and jail ministries. They can write and hold academic positions and teach. They can serve in neighborhood outreaches and to refugees and to addicts. They can give people rides to church. They can minister to the homeless. They can show the care toward all kinds of rooms and facilities in the church. They can coach church sports teams and work on websites and audio and visual equipment. They can work with pro-life ministries and counseling in person and over the phone. The list continues to a point where you would say, okay, does 1 Timothy chapter 2 bar women from ministry? The answer is no. The answer is no. It is a specific prohibition addressing the function and teaching of doctrinal instruction in the gathered church. It is not, it is not a complementarian position to say Paul is barring women from ministry. The list I gave is a sampling of the sorts of ways people in both present and past days minister and edify others. The biblical authors are not embarrassed of God's design. Verse 13, he's talking about creation order. And he's talking about that pre-fall event in Genesis 2. Not only are the biblical authors not embarrassed about creational design, we do not need to be embarrassed by what the Bible teaches either. And this is a temptation for us. It is a temptation, especially in the culture around us where this verse seems very countercultural, though not in the history of the church, certainly in our culture and in recent decades. We would say, as Christians looking at the difficulties of various texts in the eyes of our culture, we need not be embarrassed by what the Bible teaches. It may mean we risk being misunderstood. It may mean we will risk being unnecessarily reviled and accused of things that we don't actually believe. Why is he mentioning then in verse 14, 
Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Let's look at these two verses together then. In verse 13, for Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. All right, verse 13, where did he go back to? He went to before the fall, Genesis chapter 2. Now let's ask ourselves the question about verse 14. Where does this event occur? Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That's, that's no longer Genesis 2. Now we're in the next chapter, isn't it? So Paul is drawing from Genesis, first from Genesis 2, and then from Genesis 3. Genesis 3 tells the account of Satan's tempting and deceiving words. Paul's statement in verse 14 does not deny Adam's disobedience. In fact, Paul, the very writer of 1 Timothy, writes in Romans 5 an emphasis on Adam's disobedience and through whose sin death comes into the world. So verse 14 here is not saying Eve sinned and not Adam. It's specifically saying Adam was not deceived, the woman was deceived. Paul is summarizing what we read in the Genesis 3 account. When the Lord comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, the scene portrays Adam as the one ultimately responsible. God calls among the trees of the garden to Adam, where are you? Even though both had sinned. When the Lord pronounces consequences for the sin, he spoke the longest one and the final one to the man. And so there is a heavy responsibility that Adam's headship and leadership required um, for us to see all these years later as we interpret it. In Genesis 3, Adam is clearly a disobedient image bearer. What is Paul saying in 1 Timothy 2.14? That Adam was not deceived. Eve was deceived. She says so. Genesis 3.13, Eve says to the Lord, the serpent deceived me and I ate. That is her very claim about what happened. Calling Eve a transgressor is based on what happened in Genesis 3. By taking and eating, she transgressed God's command and sinned. So why is Paul bringing this up? Now, some have said in the history of interpretation, here's what verse 14 means. I don't agree with this view, but some have said verse 14 is about the greater gullibility of women. Maybe even the idea of that might make you bristle a little bit and you think, no, 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 that can't be it. But here's what some have said, that women are more easily deceived. And that's the idea of what Paul means in verse 14. And I don't think these words mean that. Besides, when Paul mentions people who have shipwrecked their faith, he mentions men in verse 20. It seems, according to one writer, that most of the problems in the Ephesian church were caused by men who were teaching false doctrine. Indeed, most of the heretical doctrines in church history were advocated by men. So he is not saying that women are more easily deceived. I don't think that's the way to read this. In fact, notice he doesn't actually say women are more easily deceived. That is one way this has been interpreted. I don't think that's correct. I think an alternative view and the stronger view sounds like this. Verse 14 is describing what happens when God's design is rejected. Verse 14 is about a reversal. Because if Adam is an appointed leader in the garden... And then Adam and Eve, as equal image bearers, are to subdue God's creation. What happens in Genesis 3? The serpent goes to the woman. And then the woman gives fruit to her husband. And then we're told that he received the fruit and ate it. We're even told in Genesis 3 verse 6 that Eve gave fruit to her husband who was with her. Who was with her and he ate. 
I think what verse 14 is connecting us to is the deviation in the Garden of Eden from what God had appointed them to do. That Adam would be a faithful leader and provider, and that in seeking the woman rather than the man, the serpent is seeking to invert God's creational design and order. Because the serpent deceives the woman, and the woman leads the man astray, and then both of them are sin, both of them sin, and Adam is held ultimately responsible. What do we see here in verse 14 that I think Paul is doing? We see that Adam's abdication of his leadership is costly. Eve was a transgressor, but that's not the whole story that this verse clues us in on. Adam's abdication of leadership is significant. Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived. And the reason she was deceived also has to do with what Adam was not doing, what he was failing to do. So the failure has to do, I think, with what verse 14 is cluing us in on, that God has designed and ordered and given, and when his design and order and givenness is deviated from and rejected, there are difficult things, sinful things, and making life more difficult kinds of things that can follow. Verse 14 is about the deception of Eve, and it goes together with verse 13, referencing that earlier story. But I think the most difficult verse is saved for last. And you might have felt this way too in verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This might be the most difficult verse, not just in this paragraph, but in 1 Timothy as a whole. I think when we look at the remainder of 1 Timothy, uh, we see... Uh, less challenging subjects and doctrinal things to interpret in the chapters ahead. Um, after we finish 1 Timothy 2 this morning, we're going to take one week a break and consider something from Deuteronomy chapter 6 that is providentially uh, something we have been arriving at in our study in the book on Sunday night. So we're going to look at Deuteronomy 6 both next Sunday morning and evening. In the week after that, we will return to 1 Timothy. But in 1 Timothy 2.15, this last verse... Yet she will be saved through childbearing is difficult. The she, the woman, being saved through childbearing sounds like the kind of thing, how do we make sense of Paul's words? Being saved, what does it mean? She will be saved, what it can't mean must, mean, must be something like a actual physical salvation in childbearing, like delivered through the act of bearing children. She will be considered safe. That is one view that has been offered of the text that I don't think is correct. Being saved, though, can't mean physically preserved because we know, actually, in both present and ancient days, that women have died during childbirth. If we say she will be physically safe or delivered physically through childbearing, we know plenty of instances where that would not have been the case, right? So I don't think this salvation is about physical safety. I think this is talking about spiritual deliverance, and that's the way First and Second Timothy and Titus have used this word. It is a promise of salvation through something that is difficult. He is not saying the woman will be saved because of childbearing. Not all women even bear children. How would the act, anyway, of childbearing deliver a woman from sin and judgment? That would contradict, wouldn't it, justification by grace through faith? What is he doing? Some interpreters have offered a very clever view of this passage that I used to hold myself because I found it very appealing. You can translate this 
that she will be saved through the childbearing or the childbirth. A clever reference, some have said, to the birth of the Messiah. It's an interesting background because Paul has drawn upon Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, a promise is made that the seed of the woman will be born and crush the serpent. In this view, women will be saved through the childbirth, the birth of Jesus of the Virgin Mary. So this would be a reference to the coming of the Messiah in his first advent with the incarnation. And that would also cohere with the purpose of the incarnation. He comes to bring rescue to sinners. I don't think on the face of it, she will be saved through childbearing is an obvious argument about the incarnation and the coming of the Messiah. I no longer hold that particular position. I I find the, the view I'm about to suggest to be more compelling, though it is a view that some Christians have held. And could that be the reading of the text? It could be. That's quite a roundabout way of saying the coming of Christ in the incarnation. Um, It could have been said much clearer if the Messiah's birth was what's in view. It could mean, just like the term childbearing is used elsewhere, not in 1 Timothy, but elsewhere, that childbearing is about the physical act of bearing children, and that it's not about Eve or Mary, but does remind us of Genesis. Isn't it true that in Genesis 3.16, Eve hears the Lord say, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bear, bring forth children. That actually childbearing is associated in Genesis 3.16 with what part of, the, part of what the difficult experience uh, of, of uh, mothers giving birth mean in the fallen world. So this childbearing uh, term, I think, does bring us back to Genesis, but to chapter 3.16 specifically. And it's not mentioned in the words from God um, to uh, Adam or to the serpent. In Genesis 3, Eve is deceived and she becomes a transgressor and a promise of pain and childbearing is given in Genesis 3.16. This is a mark of a fallen world, but it will not prevent salvation. There is salvation through the judgment upon sin. There is salvation through childbearing. Childbearing is also something unique that only women can do. Contrary to some voices in our culture, only women can give birth. It is a capacity God has endowed them with by design. We also know that in a fallen world, reproductive elements can fail to work as they should. But the design for men is different. If a man is unable to give birth, the argument is not that the man's reproductive organs are not working correctly. We recognize that God's design is that the woman have the capacity to give birth. So could it be... That Paul is drawing attention in verse 15 to childbearing because it again is connected to God's design. We've noticed in verse 13, God's order of creating Adam and then Eve. And then when that order is reversed or deviated from in verse 14, what if design seems to be the common denominator reaching into verse 15 as well? Could it be that verse 14 is about rebelling against God's design for men and women? And verse 15 is a promise to those submitting to God's design. In that sense, childbearing serves as a kind of key word to invoke bigger ideas. There's a literary device that does that. It's a practice of using a part of something to represent the whole of something. It's a word called synecdoche. And that's likely what Paul is doing here. He's using childbearing to represent the woman's overall trust in God and her obedience to God as she lives according to her bodily design. Now you might say, but, but Paul knows not all women are going to give birth to children. 
That's true. He's not universalizing childbirth among women. He's using something that is a part to represent the whole. And he has in mind a godly woman's posture of life toward God. Represented in something that would be very specific to her design or role as a mother. In verse 14, we're reminded that Eve was deceived when she turns from God's order and design. She believes the words of the serpent. Adam abdicates his responsibility. He is there as she takes and eats and then receives from her what he ought not take and eat. In verse 15, we're promised that women will be saved as they trust the Lord. As they trust the Lord. This childbearing part of the verse is challenging. But I think the idea of a posture of heart being what it's to clue you in on is explained by the latter part of the verse. What does he say at the end of the verse? If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now those are not particular elements unique to childbearing. What if the way to understand this is that Paul is zoning in on being a godly woman. And that childbearing is an example of how in the female design, this is something that women would do that man cannot do. But that at the core, childbearing is meant to point to something deeper, the heart of a woman of God. And I think the last part of the verse confirms that. If they continue, they being women here, in faith and love and holiness with self-control. You know what Paul is saying, I think, in these words? Faith is about one's trust in Christ. So he would say to our, our sisters in the Lord, keep trusting Christ. This idea of love and holiness with self-control is about the fruit of saving faith. Paul is talking about a posture of heart and life. That both faith and love, faith and holiness, faith and self-control are meant to be this all-encompassing thing that both inwardly and outwardly you live as a woman of God. I think he's saying to our, our sisters, trust the Lord and obey the Lord. And they might say, well, like my ancient mother Eve, I am a transgressor. Yes, and there is salvation for transgressors. We would say, dear sisters, continue persevering in these things. Don't you see the emphasis on perseverance there in verse 15? If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. We can look, this, look at this as a, an implied application here. To the ladies, commit yourself to learning sound doctrine. Pray to God that his word would shape your heart and your worldview. Pursue a life set apart for Christ, a holy life. Commit to good works, as he emphasizes in verses 9 and 10. You see, in a culture that says, look inside yourself, Paul's saying, look to Christ instead. In a culture that says, do what makes you happy, Paul's saying, find your joy in the Lord. And in a life of holiness and love and self-control. Pursue that. These words, even to the very end of verse 15, are very countercultural. In a gathered assembly where men and women would be learning the doctrines of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul's saying it needs to mean something more than just in your heart. It needs to have an overflow of faith and works. Of saving faith, bearing fruit. And he's calling the ladies to attend to that. To give themselves to learning about God and walking with God. Ladies, the words of God are trustworthy and you can rejoice in all of God's wisdom for your good. The marks of the fall are all around us. But there is salvation in the mediator whose name is Jesus. We realize that chapter 2 had this very important element to it in verses 5 and 6. There's one God, one mediator between God and men. 
The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So men don't have one Savior and ladies another Savior. Instead, we have the one mediator. The one God who has come as a ransom for us. There's not one gospel for older people and one gospel for younger people. One gospel for Jews and one gospel for Gentiles. There's one mediator for men and women, no matter their age or ethnicity. The Lord Jesus Christ. Because his words are trustworthy and because his cross is powerful... I think the exhortation from Paul would be to look to the cross. Hope in him who has died for transgressors. Trust the wisdom and goodness of God. And that all of his exhortations and all of his prohibitions are for the flourishing of and establishment of the people of God in the faith. So we come once again near the cross and we behold our Savior who redeems the lost and forgives the guilty and loves and is with and blesses his people. Let's stand together and pray.